Okay, hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is... Tim Phillips. Tim, we're putting the Heimer back in Barbie Heimer today. Yeah. So that feels pretty good. It does. I think uh, <laughs> it's predictable but exciting. Uh, I mean, it, it is. Barbenheimer was perhaps unpredictable and exciting. Uh, very big. Actually, another big weekend for Barbenheimer this weekend, it seems, as we're recording. The numbers haven't released yet, but uh, it's a thing. It's a real thing, Barbenheimer. Yeah. And I heard that you saw both of them on the same day, which is I did. pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. No, it was. It was a real thing. Unlike, well, we'll get into it at the end of the show when we talk about the social media. I'm just looking at a link on my computer right now about Elon getting into trouble for putting a big X on the Twitter building like he's freaking Professor X. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's not exciting. Yeah. What we're talking about today is no. definitely exciting. But yeah. All right. And credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We're here every Wednesday at 3 p.m to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the more serious half of the Barbenheimer craze, the new biographical drama Oppenheimer, which you can see at a theater near you if you haven't already. That is going to be in the back half of the show. For the first half, we are going to talk about some movies that you should maybe see before going to see Oppenheimer, if you haven't already, or maybe if you're looking for similar material or extended material to consider after your Oppenheimer journey. Um, I've heard a lot of, um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. I mean, as I generally do anyway, but I, I've been listening to a lot of reviews on Oppenheimer. And one of the interesting things about this is just how many movies people have been connecting to the experience in terms of like movies that Nolan is maybe working off of movies that inspired him to create Oppenheimer uh, movies that have a similar feel to Oppenheimer. I, I did hear um, not a complimentary comparison to walk hard, the Dewey Cox story uh, in one really? review. <laughs> <laughs> it was in, we, we might get into it when we we're talking about Oppenheimer itself. It was in reference to a, a particular scene between an argument between husband and wife. Um, if you remember the the Dewey Cox uh, story. Um, there's a scene where his wife is literally juggling babies, um, complaining about how Dewey is spending so much time on the road, which this reviewer found uh, to be particularly reminiscent of a scene in Oppenheimer. But uh, yeah, so inspiration comes from anywhere is the lesson. Yeah, I'm sure Christopher Nolan had that as his inspiration. <laughs> Maybe as deep in his subconscious or something. <laughs> I mean, despite his sort of reputation as like Mr. Serious, like I'm very serious about film and the preserving of the movie going experience. And I sat in every seat in this IMAX theater to make sure the movie was perfect. Yeah. Um, I I think he does maybe have a sense of humor about himself and maybe his movies. I, I'm not sure that always comes through, but I mean, he may appreciate the compliment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe it was such a heavy experience doing Oppenheimer that during downtime he was watching comedies. Maybe was, he watched Walk Hard and was like, "Oh, this guy gets what's... me." Yeah, <laughs> John C. Riley, he gets me. <laughs> We're on the uh, same wavelength. Yeah, I mean, it could be. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd put money on it, but you never know. All right, so we have a list of three recommendations. Um, this could go anywhere, folks, so uh, yeah. brace yourselves. Uh, Tim is going to kick us off, though, with his first Oppenheimer-adjacent recommendation. Okay, yeah, thanks, Adam. So for this topic, I uh, yeah, I've gone a little bit off with my next two but the first one i'm going to mention is just completely on the nose okay <laughs> which probably a lot of people have watched it i've read a lot of people have watched this documentary um since oppenheimer opened and i watched it for the first time just a few days ago it's the day after trinity mm -hmm. um, from 1980 doc documentary by director john else um so Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer is based on the 2005 book, American Prometheus. Um, however, I have to think that the day after Trinity served as direct inspiration in a lot of ways for uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, because mm -hmm. it covers the same same ground as, as Oppenheimer. Um, and it's available, I think, for free on the Criterion channel. I subscribe, but I read that you can watch it for free, I think, until August. It's also free um, on YouTube. Yeah, okay. Then you can go on YouTube as well. And mm. what I liked about it is it really covers the ground. Mm -hmm. It's it's a riveting piece of work with direct interviews of so many of the scientists that were involved in the Manhattan Project. And it does so in less than 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a quick watch. Uh, it's focused on J. Robert Oppenheimer course the physicist behind the who led the efforts for the first atomic bomb um but i think it also goes further than even christopher nolan's film like in 90 minutes he even talks about the effects of the bombing on hiroshima mm -hmm. uh talks to scientists about visiting the bomb sites afterwards mm -hmm. after and just going through the destroyed city of hiroshima and and what kind of perspective that gave them of, of you know the project they'd worked for many years on mm. and it's just quite a list of interview subjects one of them is frank oppenheimer the brother mm -hmm. of uh, j robert Opp oppenheimer and he he gives really good um really relevant answers about his brother obviously he's quite close to him mm -hmm. um there is the topic of the red scare and the communist uh accusations that he handles mm -hmm. they also interview hakon chevalier mm -hmm. um who in christopher nolan's oppenheimer we learn and also in this documentary about how he kind of like thrown out of the process blacklisted for suspected communist ties after he revealed that George Ellington Eltonton um, told him about Soviet infiltration and spies who were spying on the Manhattan Project mm -hmm. um, which in Nolan's movie and even in this documentary I find somewhat hard to understand maybe even harder than theoretical physics at some point like <laughs> <laughs> what actually happened there how much of it was fabricated but chevalier you hear it right straight from him mm -hmm. um he ended up moving to france 
uh, when he was blacklisted, spent the rest of his life there. And then an interview subject that I found the most fascinating in it is Robert Wilson and his wife, Jane Wilson. Mm -hmm. And Robert Wilson was a physicist at Los Alamos for the bomb project. And what they talk about at, at a certain point is they talk about how the town was populated by young men and women. And it was like a university. It was almost like a party school. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they talk about it. There's no reenactments or anything. This documentary is just straight interviews with voice, like voice of God voiceover. Mm. Um, but I think that's something that maybe uh, Christopher Nolan fumbled a little bit. He tried to show, you know, the affairs that Oppenheimer had and a bit of the womanizing and showed them drinking. And but they discuss how they were drinking like 200 proof alcohol <laughs> and just getting drunk and it was just like a party university in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and there's that whole human element where the most brilliant minds were doing some of the stupidest things at the same time yeah um because robert wilson's wife they described the ve day celebrations after the germans surrendered yeah and robert wilson's wife jane wilson's like it's just this little anecdote that they don't go further into, but she's like, yeah, you're so excited. You're throwing those trash, those garbage cans around. And that was wild. And he's like, yeah, he's almost like, doesn't want to go into it, but it's just like this drunken revelry. Yeah. Some, so stuff, much... some stuff happened on VE day that those two didn't want to talk about, or at least one of them didn't want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> like there's so much <laughs> sex and drinking and everything. And I think Nolan touches on it, but I think it's kind of clumsy in, in his, his version and then another thing with robert wilson is how he talks about that revelry of ve day and he contrasts it to the trinity test and mm -hmm. his feelings after that happened mm -hmm. and he felt sad and sick and while others had a tremendous party after it happened mm. he kind of just kept to himself and he was one of the ones who felt like uh-oh we've opened you know the genies are the bottle now yeah sort of thing so those interviews and just the honesty with those are amazing during the documentary and since j robert oppenheimer died in 1967 you don't hear from him in a 1980 interview mm. but what is really fascinating is the use of the news footage the interview he did in 1965 a black and white interview mm -hmm. that's used at the end of the documentary um, wh which is where Day After Trinity gets its title, because he's asked about, in 1965, how the government's looking at curbing the spread of nuclear weapons. Yeah. And he just responds, it's 20 years too late. Mm. It should have been done the day after Trinity. Yeah. And I don't know if he was sick during this, because I know he had lung cancer, and he was diagnosed a couple of years before he died, and he died in 1967. So... 1965 he's being interviewed and you can just tell how he's consumed by regret yeah. about what happened yeah. and then and then it ends with the famous quote from the bhagavad gita um which is used and i think clumsily in christopher nolan's uh oppenheimer mm -hmm. where they the interviewer asks uh Asked Oppenheimer, okay, what were the reactions when the Trinity bomb test was successful? Mm -hmm. And he goes, two people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent, 
And then he has a long pause and he says, I remember the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu mm -hmm. is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him, takes on a multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Yeah. And then the documentary ends and mm -hmm. you sort of just left speechless at that point. And mm -hmm. to me, we'll get into this later. To me, I, <laughs> I liked Nolan's Oppenheimer, but I think that was so effective just hearing it from him 20 years later with that regret mm. about what he he thought at the time and whether he truly thought that at the time that could be up for debate right who knows what was inside his mind at the time yeah. but for him to say that 20 years later in that interview it's really powerful it's also and, sort of the most famous one of the most famous interview clips of all time it's it's so it's I, I understand why again we'll get into that why no one would want to change that up in in the movie but it, it you know you're, you're not wrong it, it, it is po still powerful to look at yeah yeah so i highly recommend it really you know really dark subject matter but it shows sort of the human face of it all it covers a lot of the same topics as nolan's oppenheimer yeah. but i think it gives a little more perspective on the, the consequences and also I think just the environment there, which Nolan does touch on, but it was, it's interesting that you had all these young people who were, you know, and then the question comes up, should we stop now? The Germans mm -hmm. have surrendered. Mm -hmm. And impression I get, like a lot of people say, no, we had to keep going because of the threat of the Japanese, or we needed to show people this could be done. And, but I think a lot of it had to do the momentum was built. They had such a community there that they enjoyed working on it together. Yeah. That they kept going because yeah. they enjoyed it so much, right? So I, yeah. I think you know, that I think that was a big part of it. For sure. Um well on a similar wavelength, I I um was thinking about documentaries and also, in kind of response to what was not shown in Oppenheimer, and I've seen this criticism from a lot of different directions about how it didn't show the effect of the bomb on Hiroshima, which, given this documentary, I think would, if you're sort of like cramming it into this three hour movie, which is essentially about the man who made the bomb and not about the bomb itself. Um, <clears throat> the, the documentary I'm talking about is uh, called Hiroshima. BBC history of World War II. It's from 2005 because it's essentially just called Hiroshima. It's kind of hard to find on your streaming services, but um, it is a, a, a documentary. It, when, when you go looking for it on streaming, it, it'll be easy to pick out because it's like two parts. Uh, although I've only ever, and until I rewatched it for the show, I was, um, it, I only ever saw it as like sort of a two hour movie, but it's like two one hour parts. Um, it is a mix of, interviews with um hiroshima survivors and uh the surviving at the time this was the 70th 70th anniversary of the end of the world war uh world war ii and so the surviving members of the the bombing run uh including paul tibbetts who was the captain of the enola gay which was the plane that dropped the bomb i mean um talk about not having any uh conflicting thoughts about dropping the bomb at all uh, till the day he died, he died a couple of years after the, the, this was made. Um, Paul Tibbetts was sort of profoundly um, un, 
I guess, uh, un- reevaluating uh, his role in history. It was, it was just another bombing run, which, you know, maybe that's how you compartmentalize. But that's one of the interesting questions raised by this. There's also recreations of uh, the mission, but also of the day in Hiroshima um, using the eyewitness accounts. Um, it's on a TV budget in 2005. I mean, it's not an HBO budget. It's BBC and CBC co-production. Um, so you know the the ambition doesn't quite it, it reach it the or the, the ambition exceeds the grasp, but it's still incredibly powerful, incredibly harrowing. Um, these are like real life true horror stories, and I don't want to you know kind of just throw one out there because it's because it does feel oddly exploitative. But you know there is a story about a doctor who is like outside of town um, when the bombing happened, and there's a story about him the first. Um, victim of the atomic bomb he encounters um that is is really really gut-wrenching and it's there there are so many different stories like just the full effects of it of excuse me the bombing so if you're sitting there wondering why didn't they show anything from Hiroshima you sit down and watch this documentary this two-part documentary and it's like well that this is why it's it, it would just feel like overly exploitative to just sort of cram in some you know japanese victims with you know 11 million degree burns and you know the the hollowed out rubble of of hiroshima it just it would it would have it would have taken you right out of the movie because you know there are images and things in this doc that you know kind of haunt you also uh narrated by john hurt so you get that like really raspy kind of you know I've I've seen some stuff voice uh, of his that you know only adds to the haunting quality of it. So um, that's a good doc to seek out if you're wondering about what the how how Trinity intersected with Hiroshima. Um, I'm I'm glad the movie actually didn't try to address it because it's too much. Yeah. All I right. Think did oh, that sorry. level of detail? Yeah, that level of detail would be for sure. Yeah, uh, definitely. All right, let's get to uh, your number two. Okay, my number two is another documentary. It's The Fog of War by Errol Morris from mm-hmm. 2003. I think it fits with Oppenheimer, given the moral amb- ambiguity of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, Fog of War, full title, Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara, mm-hmm. who is most famous as the U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, during the Kennedy and um, Lyndon B. Johnson administrations. Mm-hmm. However, it shows a lot of his history with war and history in business as well. He was a top executive for the Ford Motor Company. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's his his lessons um, that he learned, and it addresses the fog of war, which is the difficulty of making decisions in the midst of conflict. So I think it's analogous to the um, Oppenheimer film because in Oppenheimer it's like we need to do this before the Nazis get the bomb right there's that mm-hmm. justification and and in um, in this film they address topics and it's not in chronological order um, mm-hmm. so it starts with the Cuban Missile Crisis so it starts right off with a nuclear threat uh, in October 1962, when the Soviets moved nuclear warheads onto the island of Cuba, which 
were now enemies of the United States and were pointing them at the United States. And he talks about how diplomacy stopped a catastrophe, nuclear catastrophe, and the fact that there were people in the in the room in the war room who knew Khrushchev and knew how he operated and said we just need to respond respond to his communication here where he mm. sounds kind of distressed respond to it and feed his ego and say mm. that he's actually stopping the destruction of Cuba mm. um so that was interesting and then also when we're talking about Hiroshima he talks about during World War II he was in the military McNamara was and the firebombing of Tokyo and other Japanese cities mm-hmm. that happened be- before the nuclear bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. And they have percent the size to, for an American audience, the size of those cities compared to uh, comparable American cities like Tokyo compared to New York and other cities compared to Los Angeles, another one to Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> and there's percentages saying that 51% of Tokyo was destroyed. You know, 99% of the smaller city were destroyed prior to them even dropping the atomic bombs mm-hmm. on uh, those, those two cities. Mm-hmm. And he, so then he's going through the, you know, tying himself up in uh in knots over like why did they have to bomb like we're already destroying japan like we're already almost committing he said like war crimes Mm -hmm. i believe we're already being committed why would we why did we have to do that so and it's interesting he sort of points the finger there because he wasn't in charge of the military at that point right yeah um (laughs) Because he's a very ambiguous figure when you watch it. Because And then he talks about how he became a high-level executive at the Ford Motor Company, then became president of Ford Motor Company. And then John F. Kennedy asks him if he wants to be have a cabinet position, and they decide on Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. This gentleman who's, at that point, just in the, just in the private sector with Ford, all of a sudden is in government in the highest military position uh you know secretary of defense and then from there they get into where he made his fame or infamy which is the vietnam war and Mm. he actually errol morris prompts him he says at one point errol morris says we see what we want to believe and mcnamara says yes we do we see what we want to believe and that was the justification and the entire Vietnam War was that it was mm. them wanting to win that war or trying to find be optimistic about certain things that were happening when really it was pointless uh, mm. and there's so much loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think McNamara kind of shows his stripes a bit near the end. To me, a bit cowardly in the fact that he says he blames president johnson for the escalation pretty much mm-hmm. exclusively now the recordings do show that johnson was the one in those recordings pushing it mm. pushing the escalation of in vietnam but mcnamara i think just comes across in those recordings as sort of a spineless yes man mm-hmm. and whereas in the interviews with errol morris he's trying to be this enlightened man with lessons and sort of an alpha <laughs> male mm-hmm. where 
you know, at the time you weren't that, you know, you weren't, you were somebody who wanted to keep that job. You know, we're going to go with whatever the president said, which is tough, right? A lot of people are put in that position, but um, I think it just shows the human nature, the ambiguity of, of, of war and how he's, he, he says he's learned these lessons, but has he truly learned them or mm. does he, is he just denying, denying facts when he was really the man in charge of the military during this really sort of pointless war that happened right yeah um so it, it, it and it it fits with oppenheimer in the sense that you know you know wh where do we stop what are we you know is this really was the war in vietnam really a cold war war mm. you know that's he, he says at one point early in the film, it wasn't about the Cold War. And then later on, he says it was about the Cold War. So he contradicts himself kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, but it's really fascinating to watch this man who was so tied into government commerce in the United States for such a long period to see that interview with him. And it's all just like, just like the, the first interview, the first documentary I mentioned, Day After Trinity, it's just all these interviews. This is just him facing the camera being interviewed by errol morris with of course errol morris's flourishes that is you know great reenactments and great sort of um mm. historical footage mm. it's a really fascinating movie to watch yeah and i think yeah sorry go ahead and it ties in i think with oppenheimer <laughs> and just that fog of war right yeah fog of war um yeah it's also you know him looking back decades later and and also it comes at like fog of war comes out at, the, at a time when it's like the war on terror so you know here's another fog rolling in as it were um yeah. I, well mine kind of ties into that my next one kind of ties into that uh in terms of you know who's really to blame for vietnam and it's not a documentary it's jfk so it's like the most subjective movie um you could ever <laughs> see about this time <laughs> in history um it, it's one of Oliver Stone's greatest. I mean, even if you don't necessarily agree with a lot of the directions, a lot of the the things he's promoting. I mean, in Oliver Stone today, just reading this morning about how he's on Russell Brandt's podcast talking about how he regrets voting for Joe Biden because uh, you know Joe Biden is the secret hand behind the Ukraine war. Um, so I mean, <laughs> you can make great art and still be a crackpot, I guess. Um. I mean, the, the connections to Oppenheimer are kind of obvious service level. It's a star-studded cast. You have big actors and small parts like Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau and yeah. um, uh, Gary Oldman. I mean, Gary Oldman wasn't a star yet, but I mean, he, he was about to be. Um, it's three hours. It mixes black and white and mixes uh, color. Uh, you get this really commanding lead performance. Um uh, it's a very sort of subjective view of a very important part of history. Um, it's about, you know, can you, you know, trust and trust in the upper levels of government? Like do, does your idealism match the pragmatic realities of government? And, you know, you have Jim Garrison, who's the, the DA of new Orleans played by Kevin Costner is like, I will figure out who killed Kennedy. And, uh, People, even if it takes a hundred years, people will realize. And you know, yet the whole thing ends with this like, like half hour closing argument 
which is which is like intercut. That's the other thing too. It's like this is a movie. This is a big epic movie, which is essentially about a lot of people talking in rooms, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and the way it's edited and the way it flows and the way the music cuts in, um, it really it, it, it keeps you on your edge of your seat. Even though it's again, it's a movie about people talking in rooms, but yeah. it keeps flowing and it keeps going and it keeps throwing stuff at you, throwing new details, throwing new names. Uh, you know, it, it's about espionage. It's about trust in government. It's about trusting history. Um, and it's just, it, it's all kind of based around this, like really Kevin Costner gets a lot of crap, but here you get to see him do like capital a acting. And, um, what I find interesting is, you know, this comes at a time when, you know, early nineties, the emergence of like conspiracy kook culture that would like be parlayed through the X files and various other things. But what's interesting is I think you could watch this in the nineties and go, wow, that Jim Garrison was kind of a crazy guy, but in sort of like the post truth era, he, you can see like, it's, it's like reality has caught up to Oliver Stone in this where Jim yeah. Garrison doesn't look like a kook. He looks like a hero now. Yeah. And, uh, boy that's that's like a subjective viewing of the movie that can only happen now is that you know you you can understand looking back at this in nine at the 90s and seeing like oh well garrison's like a stand-in for stone and his kind of like kooky conspiracies it's like you know what now he's kind of like this george washington figure figure <laughs> this like harbinger of the new age but it, it is interesting it, it's interesting to go back and watch jfk now and um see a lot of those uh, I do wonder, and maybe Christopher Nolan's talked about this, and I haven't seen it, or maybe he will talk about it at some point. Just how big an influence JFK might have been on Oppenheimer, uh, at least stylistically, if nothing else. So yeah, it it, it it's, it's it, that's worth a revisit. Yeah, it's a good good choice. Yeah, given like you're saying, there's so much talking, and it's similar to Nolan's Oppenheimer and the black and white to color. Mm-hmm. Uh, JFK, I think, goes even even beyond that in a lot of ways it's just sure it's such an entertaining film because like the camera works just nuts it's like okay we're gonna just do this weird camera angle or get right up in the face of somebody here um <laughs> you know it's just like extreme filmmaking in a, a lot of ways which is really entertaining to watch but yeah like you said a lot of it's a this... crack crackpot theories but it's like <laughs> you're so entertained that you just eat them up right it was this big epic Oscar bait prestige film that came out at Christmas 1991, and it's just it's just like three hours of crack pottery. It, it is amazing. Um, it's it's alchemy. I don't know how else to put it, but anyway, we still have one more movie to go. So, Tim, what's your number three? My number three is Zero Dark Thirty from mm-hmm. 2012 by director Catherine Bigelow. Uh, what made me tie this to Oppenheimer is it's uh, it's about a project that's taken on um, for a lot of sense for national security um, but it both end up being long-term projects of course in Oppenheimer they developed a bomb really in retrospect quickly in a few years and zero dark 30 is close to a decade pursuit of Osama bin Laden Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I, I think also, you know, as time goes on, how, how much of it is about 
you know, stopping Al Qaeda and how much of it's retribution for the 9-11 attacks, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess this is reading into a bit on Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. It maybe fits more with the documentary Day After Trinity, but it's like at that point when the Germans surrendered, how much of the um, the military wanting to go ahead with the atomic bomb and, and drop it on Japan had to do with truly ending the war versus, you know, retribution for Pearl Harbor, for instance. Right. Um, uh, so. And Truman I says that in his address after the bombing too, that it, about retribution. Yeah. So I think for both of these, it's like, okay, you know, how much of it is, is about that retribution, which everyone, you know, a lot of people felt like, okay, we, have to capture bin Laden. we have to kill bin Laden. let you know he's and you know how much of it was you know to stop al-qaeda um mm. but i think it's just it's an excellent film and then it also shows the moral ambiguity of war once again with the mm-hmm. um black site um quote-unquote interrogations which are like torture scenes yeah um very dark subject matter mm-hmm. Um, which you see on the screen, I think in Oppenheimer, it's like sort of left to your mind a lot. Like what's the destruction going to be of this bomb. Right. Mm -hmm. And in this, it's like, you can see the means to the end that they're taking here to, to get that intelligence, all of this, you know, the dark site torture is going on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an excellent film. Um, Jessica Chastain, I think, as Maya is just amazing in the in the lead role. It's a fictional role as CIA intelligence analyst. Yep. Um, Another yeah. central performance where there's a lot going on around her all the time. Yeah, yeah. There's so much collaboration going on, yet it's focused on her, just like Oppenheimer. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I would. I and I'd say it's you know dark viewing but <laughs> kind of rewarding viewing it's yeah. right there in the title <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> zero dark 30 so it's dark um but i would i would definitely if you haven't seen it watch it it's probably not something i'm going to watch multiple times I've seen it i think two sure. times but yeah. it's um yeah the fog of war once again i think uh is demonstrated in that like what what are the um what where, where's your moral compass when it comes to this these sort of actions to try to defeat an enemy so i would highly recommend it it's a great film yeah it's a great follow-up to to for bigelow after the hurt locker which is about how soldiers get messed up in a very particular way on the on the battlefield and then you get zero dark 30 which is about you know how these intelligence people get messed up and sort of the less glorious um opaque fields of intelligence gathering um for my last pick this is kind of like almost directly uh (laughs) maybe not a direct tie-in to oppenheimer but it's something that's happening tangentially um it's uh morton tildum's the intimidation game which is about alan turing who led the team that broke the enigma code that the germans were using it was considered unbreakable he broke it and in the process helped um essentially built the what, what would be essentially the first personal computer um and like oppenheimer this is a man who had deep sort of personal tumult um he was gay uh, so, so i mean he's he's that different from oppenheimer but because of 
the times and because of attitudes. Um, this created a lot of pressure on him, a lot of perhaps mental health concerns that uh, if he had lived today, he might not have he might have been able to overcome. Um, he's not a very likable person, but uh, he he comes to earn the respect of his his team and sort of learns to be more personable, particularly with working with this woman, uh, Joan Clark, who at one point he was engaged to. But I mean, again, he he was gay. Um, and it's also got a subplot about Russian spying and, you know, is, is being a Russian spy such a bad thing when Russians are allies and, mm-hmm. um, you know, having to hide things about yourself as a person in order to get the, the job done for the greater good. And can those two things sort of like coexist? And again, not the same, obviously being gay is bad, but at this time and at this place being gay was bad. Um, and, and so it's a movie about how difficult people dealing with personal struggles are, are capable of these great accomplishments that have resonance, not just in their own time, but for all time. And also, you know, Oppenheimer ends with uh, essentially um, spoiler alert that, you know, him being welcomed back and being given his, his sort of proper status in the scientific community. There's a postscript in, the intim- uh the imitation game i think i called it the intimidation yeah, game. yeah imitation <laughs> game the yeah. imitation game it was kind of it kind of was an intimidation game yeah. but the imitation game where uh in 2013 queen elizabeth pardoned alan turing and and uh recognized him for his co- of course this was all you know buried in british intelligence for 50 years too so uh half a century later just as you know computers started appearing on everybody's desks uh, around the world, Alan Turing, the man who made it possible, start finally start his name finally starts getting out there as sort of the the one to uh, thank or the one to blame, depending on your <laughs> where you stand on personal computing. Um, all right, well that's our list. Um, we're gonna take a quick break and come right back with our formal review of Oppenheimer. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm afraid of Americans. I'm afraid of the world. I'm afraid I can't help it. I'm afraid I can't. I'm afraid of Americans. I'm afraid of the world. in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. We have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. And that was a clip from Oppenheimer. It's the new film from writer and director Christopher Nolan, and it stars Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Benny Safdie, Kenneth Branagh, Robert Downey Jr., and many, 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 many more. 
Um, I, just just as a personal anecdote, I love watching this movie and seeing Rami Malek stand at the side and say nothing for two and a half hours, <laughs> and then having him come in and do yeah. one speech. That was yeah. kind of baller. That was kind of baller. Yeah. Well, you when you see him at that hearing, you're like, okay, here now. Here we go. Here, here, here we here go. Goes. They're not going to have him just say, sign this petition. <laughs> Can you sign this petition, please? That's his only line. I don't, I don't think so. Or he's about to talk and then somebody cuts him off. Wait, right, where am I, Malik? <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the thing about a movie like this is that uh, you can just, you know, hire, you know, Olivia Trilby to stand there in the back for a while. Or, you know, you have Jack Quaid, you know, play on the bongos and a couple of scenes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's something else. But anyway, uh, initial thoughts about Oppenheim right here. Uh, my initial thoughts were I thought the movie met the expectations. I mm-hmm. was blown away in a lot of respects watching mm-hmm. it. So pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, but yeah, I would say it, it met the expectations, which is saying a lot because there were mm. such high expectations on this and on Barbie, right? Mm-hmm. With the Barbenheimer, with all the hype surrounding it. So I would say it met those expectations. I do have issues with s- some of the content of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, though, I it, Nolan very masterful in making me feel a mood with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, Killian Murphy was extraordinary as Oppenheimer. He's mm-hmm. amazing to watch. Um, I thought the supporting cast was good too. I think there's some stunt casting a little <laughs> bit there, right? <laughs> like like you said with Ram- Rami Malek, it's like, okay, you know he's going to have something else to say here because he's Rami Malek, right? Mm-hmm. But um, so that's just one other thing to add. I've got a few other things I didn't quite like about it, but I just thought it was it, it was an amazing experience. And then when it was over, um, the final line, like now we set off a chain reaction, mm-hmm. it 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 put me in a certain state. And mm-hmm. I watched Barbie a few days later, so I wasn't going straight to Barbie after this. So <laughs> I could kind of just be alone w- with my thoughts. But I would say with this, with um, Oppenheimer, it made me feel like a mood after it ended. Whereas Barbie, funnily enough, it sort of made me think about certain things after, like real content things. Yeah. Where this was more of sort of a, a mood. And then the more I researched into Oppenheimer and I watched that documentary the day after Trinity, I think I felt like, you know, some things could have been tweaked in this to make it even better. But, mm. you know, for, for what it's worth, it's just. I thought it was an amazing cinema going experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it, it's not so much about making the bomb as it is. It's like about making the man and how a man is unmade. Um, you know, you get to see Oppenheimer as a student. I think it's in Cambridge uh, where he goes to school where he's like nebbish. He's, you know, having a, a, a personal crisis um tries to poison his teacher um you know he's he's clearly got this big inner life but he's rubbish in a lab and you know it's kind of a uh foreshadowing of his his troubles later on with the manhattan project where you have this incredibly smart person who's able to uh, there's this one line that his friend um isadore robbie has where he says he's a great improviser but can't do this in his head it turns out you can do it in your head 
Um, the thing you can't do in your head, though, is is get all the politics aside, which is very much his undoing. He was unwilling to sort of play the politics. And he, when he did play politics, like shutting down the... Um, there's a, a scene after VE Day where there's a meeting of some of the scientists where they're talking about should we like present a, a, a sort of a, a a brief to the military that we shouldn't use the bomb uh, against Japan. Like the the main the main danger of the Nazis getting a bomb has passed. Where he like kind of reluctantly shuts that down because this is the kind of thing where he'd probably want to be in on it and want to scrap and want to talk about the philosophizing. But he he has to go in there and be the boss and he hates being the boss even though he wants to be the man which <laughs> kind of do it seems sounds like a distinction without a difference but in oppenheimer's case i i don't i'm, I'm sure i think there was a difference he wanted to be the guy but he didn't want to be the boss um yeah. the other part of it is i mean i think nolan is a big idea man and there's so much you can read into like sort of the overall like the high level text like one can read a lot about ai our current debates about ai into this mm-hmm. um whether or not you know there's some chicken littleism right now with some of the the people who are saying like ai is we're on a course to destroy ourselves with ai um one can also read uh <laughs> lewis straws as a yeah. stand-in for david zasloff <laughs> um you know this being this you know bean counter bureaucrat who doesn't get the creative process <laughs> oh yeah i think he could also be a stand-in for like donald trump too right absolutely he was slighted right um, slight yes yes he was that's slighted right. just like barack obama an imaginary trump. slight too an imaginary yeah. slight <laughs> yeah yeah so he sort of like trump in a way right he's got his chip on his shoulder mm-hmm. probably if trump as much as he comes across like this, having a super ego and everything, he probably thinks <laughs> he really feels like he's not that intellectual, right? And, he turned Einstein against me. Yeah, yeah. and that's how <laughs> Strauss is. He feels slighted by <laughs> by that. Yeah, you, you're talking to, to Einstein behind my back about me, like putting me down or something, right? And also, like, there's all these people who are willing to like go along with him taking down Oppenheimer, the the Dane DeHaan. A character who's in military intelligence and the FBI guy again, little role, big actor in a little role, David Dustmalkin <laughs> playing the FBI guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's 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 incredible. Um, let's talk about some of your issues then. What are some of your 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 issues? Yeah, I thought, I thought, okay, um, like the sex scenes, yeah, with Florence Pugh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, like and nolan even said he was uncomfortable doing or he, i don't know if he said he was uncomfortable but his first time he had done them in a film yes i thought it it just came across like it just stood out in a, sort of a bad way just sort of like it was a distraction that i think was unnecessary mm-hmm. um when i watched the documentary day after trinity uh, uh somebody they interviewed she says yeah he was quite a ladies man i think they could have gotten into that and um, the Gene Tatlock character is interesting and consequential given what happens at the hearings, mm-hmm. but he could have gotten into more of the hedonism that was going on in that, that like I s- said before, like that university uh, party mm-hmm. school and how he was like the, the leader, the dean of the whole thing. You could have <laughs> gotten into that, um, but I thought, you know, and I thought it was a really awkward way to present that um, that quote. I am become death 
destroyer of worlds. Yeah. Like they're just happen to be having sex. She's on top of him. Then she leans over and she sees a text on his, uh, on his shelf. And she's like, Oh, read me something from this. And he's like reading it to her while they're having sex. I thought that was very artificial. Like they could have maybe presented that in a different way. Like after they've had sex, he, they're looking at his books or something. And, you know, scene where Florence Pugh's sitting in the chair and he's Killian Murphy's on the other side there, um, Oppenheimer and Gene Tatlock opposite each other where they're naked. Mm -hmm. I felt like that was very sort of like male gaze kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I'm somebody like, I think Florence Pugh's beautiful Mm -hmm. and it's interesting to watch that. Right. (laughs) But is it, (laughs) is it just a distraction from, from the rest of the movie and i thought her character could maybe could have been developed if you're going to have that character develop it more because it's more like okay we get it she's turned on by his brain Mm -hmm. um she's troubled Mm -hmm. okay she's troubled you know and i didn't think that was developed that well so Mm. and something that's you know something that you might disagree with but the red scare component the whole construct of that throughout the film Mm. for me i know that's kind of what the film's about oppenheimer it's not about like you're saying it's about oppenheimer it's not necessarily about making the bomb but Mm. um i thought the red scare stuff was not as effective or entertaining or um compelling to me as the stuff about the moral ambiguity of making this bomb or the the revelry of making the bomb or the 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 um scientific know-how that went into making the bomb and i understand that this um this affected oppenheimer's life he lost mm. his security clearance strauss mm. is an interesting character like we said he's got this sort of chip on his shoulder <laughs> where he's easily slighted i felt having the whole film with it that con- construct might not have been what my choice i might have had that more later on in the film Mm. and then got into maybe oppenheimer later in life which is kind of a biop biopic um Mm. that's something you see in biopics okay they jump to later in life now he's got regrets like that television interview in day after infinity i think is is amazing to watch and i know like um no one probably wants to do his own thing didn't want to get into Hiroshima, but yeah. I think you could have presented more of that and also said and have those details earlier on where it's like, okay, he's a suspected communist. His brother's like a confirmed communist. You mm-hmm. have those little details running through and then show at the end how he's kind of tossed aside mm. um, because he, he's seen as a communist. Just like they take the bomb away and they're like, we're going to, we'll take it from here. It's like, okay, mm. you're suspected communist. You're tossed aside. But in real life, when you read about him, he, you know, had that cushy job where Louis Strauss invites him. Okay, here's your, your what yeah. a wonderful commute. He yeah. did have that, you know, for like the remainder of his life. So um, I think it, it would have been more compelling, I think, if it was more about the bomb and Oppenheimer's role in that. And then. The, then his life after that yeah the the red scare 
I think I think the whole red scare thing was sort of like a I think it was kind of a means to an end. You know, they wanted Oppenheimer like Oppenheimer was talking about like de- denuclearization, um, you know, peace talks and you know it it was the cold war and you know Russia gets a bomb and all of a sudden, you know, you want to build the bigger bomb and and that there's just there's kind of that friction. It's like are you building a bomb to end war or are you creating a bomb that's going to lead to new, bigger, more disastrous wars. And I, I, what I found interesting about Oppenheimer and the whole thing to the Red Scare is that we, we focus a lot on the 50s side of it, where people's past communist affiliations were being used against them. We don't really talk about from the other side of it, from the 1930s, when it was like the Great Depression, and you know millions of people are unhoused, unfed, jobless, no hope. And, you know, you know, so communists come in and start talking about like well wouldn't it be great if like all these rich guys who you know are living fine during the great depression if they were like made to share their wealth and you know you were protected by a union um so that they, you can't just be thrown out of a job because it, you know the, the company has an unprofitable quarter i mean that's a lot of that's like fairly appealing and it's, it gets into that friction of like ideas versus uh practical realities and i think that's what uh, I, I think i'm not sure Nolan was interested in litigating the Cold War. I think he was just interested in how uh, the Red Scare was used as a cudgel by by people like Straws. Um, the thing with the sex scenes, I don't disagree with you. I feel like this is Nolan trying to get out of his comfort zone to an extent. Um, like the, there's there's the scene where that, that scene you're talking about, where there's in the hotel room, Gene Hatlock and and Oppenheimer. And they're they're sitting there naked, and it, it splits between that and the the scene in the the it's not a trial, it's like a hearing or something, where where they're talking about how he saw her at this point during work on the Manhattan Project, and then his wife is sitting there at the back of the room, um, and then she has this vision of Oppie sitting there while sitting there naked while Gene appears and grinds on him as he's sitting there in the hearing. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and like that's like by Nolan standards, that's like downright kinky. Um, by Paul Verhoeven standards, not so much, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is interesting because you know it, it's been on the in the ether, like talking about would Christopher Nolan direct a James Bond movie? And he's like, of course I would. Can't you tell I love James Bond movies? Like, well, Nolan, you love everything about James Bond movies except the sex. I mean, even in the last one where. James Bond is a baby daddy. He still makes time to get down with the baby mama. So it's, it's you know, yeah. <laughs> he loves everything about James Bond to a point. But, you know, while he's kind of testing those limits, and this gets into the Dewey Cox of it, um, the, the women characters, are, I mean, I understand why. It, it, this was not an era f- where women played a, a, a primary role in sort of the ways of the world. Um obviously but there is some great stuff with emily blunt as kitty oppenheimer that yeah would have been interesting to see sort of um play out in the rest of the movie and i don't want to talk about the movie i didn't see but they're just there's that scene at the end where she's being testifying at the hearing and she's weaving and pivoting and and you know really getting the best of this prosecutor played by jason clark and then that that cold end scene where uh teller 
um goes to shake teller's like the guy who developed the h bomb or led the development of the h bomb and kind of threw oppie under the bus to do it where he goes to shake her hand and she won't and she just looks yeah. at him steely and it's just like this is the character i want more of not the one who's like she she juggling gets up babies. and <laughs> juggling babies or like dropping her purse and then oh it's a flask it's a flask yeah. she's drinking oh yeah yeah <laughs> she's very she's very good in it but yeah it's kind of a character caricature in some senses right like yeah, that oh she's yeah. she's neglected drunken you know and <laughs> but she's I think she's very good in it and that of the like if you say like three components of the sex scene there's when they're having sex and they're reading the text. Mm-hmm then they're well they're just sitting naked and then in the courtroom the kangaroo court where they're mm. putting oppenheimer on trial i found the part in the the sex scene in the court probably the most compelling mm. like with his wife watching mm. i thought you know this is you know th- th- this is showing his guilt about not being a communist about his personal indiscretions yeah um but it does sort of stick out like a sore thumb because it's the only time where it's not real realistic in that courtroom i think it's the only time where there's something you know imagined and if there have been other imagined things where they're prying into his life i think it would have fit better but it kind of sticks out because everything else is like we have this recording of you we're interviewing you but whereas that was well there's also the bit later Right. There's also yeah. a bit later where Clark's like really gr- going after him and he has yeah. this like vision of a bomb going off in the middle of the, the hearing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That that is subjective, too. But I I, th- I think that's. It's there's also the whole thing. And this is the thing about Nolan is he doesn't like to spell things out, which I which I dig. But the, the whole thing about that sort of last hour is about, you know, and I think the, the, the Emily Blunt character spells it out. It's like. He's doing this. He's like letting them scourge him rhetorically as sort of penance for developing the bomb. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's it, it, it's interesting that it, I, I, all of this is sort of presented subject, subjectively. I mean, it's not a docudrama. Mm-hmm. This is very much from the point of view of the man. And at the heart of the man is this struggle. Like, did I do this because I was trying to help a country win a war or was i doing this to like prove that i'm like one of the greatest scientists ever mm-hmm. um was i doing this because it was a fun thought experiment like hey yo can we build an atomic bomb wouldn't that be interesting um it, it, it's yeah. like all of this thrown together about just like it, it is and that's why i think people are such a hard time it's like well it doesn't do this it doesn't do this and it's like yeah but that's okay it's it's a very subjective point of view about this very interesting man who brilliant scientist maybe gave humanity the keys to kill itself yeah. kind of a womanizer but couldn't, you know what? couldn't run a hot dog stand couldn't right? run a hot dog stand that's yeah. right <laughs> but you know who was interesting and people cared about i mean the, the whole the relationship with the 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 isidore robbie character too where it's like i was trying to get him to eat something and that that conversation they have in the train car about growing up being jewish and growing up on opposite sides of the park it's you know that's there's a lot of stuff to dig and and nolan i think the real gift of this is just how nolan keeps the pace up for three hours click 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 and maybe that has something to do with like the the, the use of sound in this too where like the the pounding of the feet against the mm-hmm. the stands where it sounds like a marching army but it also sounds like a pounding headache that you have 
Um, but it also is this jubilant celebration of an accomplishment. Like so much of this movie just goes click, 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 removing you from 54, 58, 42, 21, click, 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 click. And it's it, yeah. it, it like not many filmmakers could do this. Like we're just going to usher you in from one point to another. We're going to go back. We're going to go forth. We're going to go back. We're going to go forth. Here's black and white. Here's this guy, Louis Strauss. Now, what was Oppie doing in, you know, 39? You know, yeah, it, it moves moves so well. I'm like, it I've moves so well. spoken with other people who haven't seen it and they're like, it's three hours though, right? And I'm like, you don't notice. It moves. Yeah. yeah. You don't so, notice. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely moves. Yes. And yeah, I was mesmerized at the end of it. I was really, really in sort of a trance watching it. And then, you know, you know, afterwards, there's a few things here and there I would have done differently. Mm. Um, probably would have kept the same three hour time mark but just maybe cut a few things here and there mm-hmm. um and i think he maybe in retrospect will feel the same way but mm. it's um yeah it's an amazing story of the life of this this man like i said mm. killian murphy's i think i think really uh, he's amazing in the lead role mm-hmm. um and yeah you know and there are things i think could have been done differently just like Killian Murphy, he's so good, so serious most of the film, right? Mm. And you see all these pictures of Oppenheimer where he's so serious. But I'm just wondering if there's a there's lighter the side goofy, too, There's also the right? goofy one where he's in his, he's looking right at the camera and his pork pie hat and his pipe is like at the side. Yeah. It's a little bit goofy. Yeah, he liked to dress up, right? And he liked uh, the military <laughs> outfit for a while. And then, well, uh, there's a, there's a scene where Robbie comes to visit him as their Billy Los Alamos and he's in uniform. And Robbie's like, you know what? Don't be this guy. Don't be this military guy. Be yourself. And then there's like the scene where he's got like his whole outfit laid out in his room. And it's like he's getting into the bat suit. (laughs) 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 But uh, yeah, yeah. so there's a lot to like about Oppenheimer. Um, We could probably talk about it for hours, but the show is only one hour and we have to leave it there. So that's it for our show. We hope you liked it. You can listen to us again at our website and creditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you're on Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show, and we're on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And Tim, where else can people find you on the internet? Uh, Flash in the deadpan on the internet. Find me on X, Y, and Z. <laughs> <laughs> There is and nothing I hate more than referring to that website as X. I'm just you're, you're gonna have to soon, I think. I know, I yeah. know. All right, oh, well. I'll <laughs> I'll be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Golf with Scotty Hertz. It is a repeat, just to put you straight. A uh, repeat for a couple of weeks as we take a break from that show. But you can also find me on X. And Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson or check out my news and politics site at GuelphPolitico.ca and stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return, of course, next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits. And we will see you then. Mm-hmm.